Now, these are the last day's parables uh, of Jesus. We're going to look tonight at the parable of the ten virgins. Really, really rich. It's really good. And uh, so, I did that. You know what? It wasn't turned on. Now we're done. Now, last time we looked at the five illustrations Jesus gave of what his return would be like. You remember that? And uh, of how the church is to behave while waiting. It's amazing to me how the Lord looked down the tunnel of time. And he knew that his, his return would be a long ways off because that's what he wove into his parables. But he said, now here's, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to tell you how my church needs to be postured, needs to be behaving uh, before I return. And the five illustrations that he gave to us, first of all, were of lightning. My return is going to be like lightning, stretching, arcing across the sky. And then the second illustration, a carcass with eagles gathered around it. If you weren't here last week, grab the CD. I don't have time to really go back over all of it. The third one, a fig tree. And the fourth illustration, the master of a household invaded by a thief. And then the fifth illustration, the Lord returning to his household. And how did he find the servants that he turned the household over to behaving? And that's the five illustrations. These illustrations were part and parcel of the Lord's response to the three questions his disciples asked him. After he had said, do you see this temple and do you see this city? I'm telling you not one stone is going to be left standing on another of this temple and the whole city is going to be destroyed. Why? Because she knew not the time of her visitation. That's why. So the message there is when the Lord warns you, listen. Because it's always catastrophic if we, if we ignore the Lord's warnings. Now, so the, he said this, and then they said, Lord, really? The temple's going to be destroyed and the city? And they asked these three questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Three questions, okay? Now, Jesus responded by predicting many signs for them to look for preceding Jerusalem's demise. Remember, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, the various general signs that he gave. And then he looked down through the centuries to our day, and he predicted signs relating to his return to the earth. Make no doubt about it. Listen, Jesus clearly said over and over again, I'm coming back physically. I'm physically returning to the earth. Not metaphorically, not theoretically, not, you know, poetic license, not, uh, you know, in a figure. No, I'm coming back literally to planet earth. So he gave signs about that. Now, not only did Jesus answer their questions with those numerous general signs that I just named, and then with five illustrations that we covered last week, but he continued with three striking parables, all having to do with their three questions. So always remember, folks, that Matthew 24, 25, the two chapters, is a complete whole. It's a complete whole. It all flows out of the Lord's response to the questions concerning his return. So with that in mind, let's read the parable of the ten virgins. And I would really suggest to you, uh, before we read this parable, that you go home and maybe this week just read Matthew 24, starting at verse 1, all the way through to the end of 25, and get the overall warp and woof of what Jesus was doing. Because he took a lot of time 
uh, to answer those questions. Amen? Here's the ten virgins. Starting in verse 25, or chapter 25, this is uh, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy, and what they do? Fell asleep. And at midnight, they were roused by the shout that we're all going to hear one day. Amen? Said, and here, here's what was said. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And suddenly, the bridegroom is there. Verse 7. All those virgins, all ten of them got up and prepared their lamps. Then look what happened. Then the foolish ones asked the others, said, uh-oh. I, I inserted the uh-oh. But it was a great, big uh-oh. And they said, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. Translated, go get your own. Go get your own. Verse 10, but while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was what? Locked. You think of Noah's ark there? God shut the door, and it was locked. There comes a time, folks, when the door is shut, and it's locked. Please know that. You don't have your, well, you have your whole life, but you don't have any time after your life. There comes a time when the door is locked. There comes that time when, with individuals. There comes that time with nations. There comes that time with the world. Ask Lot's day. Ask Sodom and Gomorrah. Ask Noah's generation. There comes a time when the door is locked. And Jesus uh, inserted this into the parable, and the door was locked. Now look what happened in verse 11. Later, when the other five virgins returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Please let us in. I can hear Noah's people doing the same thing. Noah, we didn't mean all those things. Let us in. Verse 12, but he called back. What did he say? Read it with me. Believe me, I don't know you. Now here comes Jesus making the application. Verse 13, he says, so you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. How many times do we hear the Lord saying that? How often is that repeated in the New Testament? Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Always be ready. Be sure you're ready. Because it's going to happen and you don't expect it. And when it happens, it happens. He's going to come back. And it's going to be sudden, like a thief in the night, like lightning streaking across the sky, suddenly. Now, this parable follows the former illustration slash parable of the householder who goes on a long journey and leaves the servants in charge of the house. We dealt with this one last week. And this is the Lord's focus with all of these parables. These three parables have one focus, and that is an absent Lord who's going to come back. That's the focus of the last three parables. That's the, that's the way he ends his answer to the questions. They all deal with an absent Lord. The parable of the householder presents the Lord absent. 
and his servants are left in charge. Last week we said the servants are the church. The house is the church. The servants are Christians. And, of course, the householder is the Lord. He comes back, and remember what we said? He wanted to see how we treated one another. Now, then the parable of the virgins, the Lord uh, is presented as the bridegroom who is absent with certain people left there to wait for him. Same idea. And finally, we have the parable of the absent Lord who bestows talents. And we're going to deal with that next week. Who bestows talents upon his own servants and their response while waiting for his return. What did they do with the talents? And I'm not talking about a personal gifting necessarily. We'll, we'll deal with it next time. Now, as we'll see, a threefold responsibility is revealed in three parables. So Jesus gives all the general signs. You want to know what it's going to look like? There's going to be earthquakes, famines, pestilences in many various places. And they're going to increase with intensity and frequency before I come back. And I'm coming quickly like lightning. And judgment is going to follow. And you'll know these things by watching just like you watch the green leaves come forth on a tree and you know that summer is near. When you see these signs, you know my return is near. He dealt with all of that. Now he's wrapping up his answer with three parables. And every one of the parables has to do with personal responsibility on the part of those waiting for him. Now, the first parable deals with communal responsibility. How the Lord's household, the church, treats each other. Can you say with me communal? So we all have a communal responsibility, don't we? To treat one another as Jesus would treat us. That's the parable of the master who goes away and leaves his servants in charge of the house. Now the second parable, the one we're dealing with tonight, of the ten virgins, is the responsibility of the individual over him or herself. I'm responsible for my brother and my sister, but I'm also responsible for me, whether or not my candle is burning when he returns. We call it soul care. If you were in our staff meetings uh, here at the church, you would know that I'm almost a broken record with our staff. I, I say it all the time because I say it to myself all the time. Never, never uh, let go of your devotional time. Always keep your devotional time with the Lord intact because that's how you keep the candle lit. And I can't light your candle. I can encourage you, but I can't. I'm not there when you go through your week. You've got to keep your candle lit. That's the idea. So communal responsibility, say it with me, communal, and then personal responsibility to keep oil in my lamp. And then in the parable of the talents, we see the responsibility of the church to impact the world, literally to invest the goods of the kingdom into the world where it brings a return to the one who gave us the talent. The Lord is an investor. And he wants a return on his investment. Now, let me tell you, yes, you're redeemed. You're a child of God. He loves you more than we could ever understand. But you are also you. I'm talking to you. You are one of the Lord's investments into this world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He wants a return on the investment. People impacted by the kingdom in your life. So again, let's be sure we get this. 
Because we're following just, the, just from 24 verse 1 through 25, chapter 25 and the last verse. So let's be sure we get this. The parable of the householder refers to communal responsibility, how we want another one another, how we treat each other. The ten virgins refers to personal responsibility, how we care for our own souls. And the parable of the talents refers to kingdom responsibility, how well we invest the kingdom into the world. I'm so glad we're in a church that's investing the kingdom of God into the world. We sow the kingdom into the world each and every day. We're sowing the kingdom into the world. You and me together, we're doing it into the the world. And it's only going to get better. Because the Lord saved me, saved you. Don't you know that he wants a a return on his investment? Here I go leaking into next week. I got to stop. Now when the Lord returns... Three things will be scrutinized in his church. How did you treat one another? How well are you personally prepared for his return? And how successfully did you invest the goods of the kingdom into the world he died for? Those three things are going to be scrutinized. And those things are going to receive uh, chastening or reward. Chapter 24 ends with the parable of the householder and the return of the master of the house. But chapter 25 begins with the word then. It's amazing how powerful one little word can be, then. But remember, there's no chapters in the original text. Do you know that? There were no chapters. There were no verses. It was just a running scroll. There was no chapter 24, no chapter 25. Men did that to break it up and help us to assimilate it and grasp it and follow it. But in the original, there was no chapter, there was no verses. It was just a running text. So Jesus is continuing his thought from 24, right into chapter 25. So he says, then. Well, then what? Then, when the Lord shall come to deal with his people concerning their communal responsibility, then... He will liken the kingdom of heaven to the ten virgins. So now we're following a continual thought on the part of the Son of God. So let's do it. Now the Lord is shifting from our communal responsibility to our individual responsibility to be ready for His return. That's the shift. He hasn't broken His stride since 24 verse 1. The parable uses the illustration of a bride and a bridegroom. Now his emphasis in this one is not on service like it was in the first one, but it's on spiritual life. That's his emphasis. Your spiritual life, my spiritual life. And we could also say spiritual health. Illustrated by the oil in the lamps and the trimmed wick. Jesus is using here the beautiful picture of a first century Eastern wedding. And everybody listening to him knew exactly what he meant. But since we're not there in the first century, let me read to you what a first century wedding and betrothal and engagement was was like. And some of you are going to be saying, oh, thank you, Jesus, I don't live then. Because watch this, it was very different from us. In that time, there was the engagement that was usually arranged by the parents or professional matchmakers, I would stop right there. 
I don't want my parents picking my spouse. And I sure don't want a meddling matchmaker doing it. Any of you ever been victim of a matchmaker? Don't raise your hand. I've seen great damage from matchmakers. I refuse to matchmake. Kathy will do it. <laughs> Kathy matchmakes. But I won't do it because if it doesn't work out, I don't want to get blamed. But Kathy's willing to take that risk. In other words, if you want to meet somebody, come to Kathy after the service. <laughs> She'll work that out for you. All right. I won't go there. That's where angels fear to tread. Now, the couple might even be mere children at the time of the engagement. And they may never have seen each other. Can you imagine that? Whoa. Then there was the betrothal. This happened when the couple approached a marriageable age. They became betrothed. And that was a heavy thing. It, it was carried out with feasting. The betrothal, not the marriage, but the betrothal. It was carried out with feasting and ceremony, almost as elaborate as the wedding itself. It was binding, folks, and usually took legal action to break it. This is where Mary was when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Ghost. And she was with child, and Joseph, who she was betrothed to, found out. And she said, God did it. Can you imagine being told that, guys? That's where Mary was. That's why it was such a big deal. That's why Joseph was thinking about privily putting her away so that she would avoid the shame because she was betrothed, and that was a big deal. If the man died, here's how heavy the betrothal was. The young woman was technically his widow, though they had not been officially married yet. About a year after the betrothal, there was the wedding. It was a huge festival. Remember when Jesus went to the wedding and turned water into wine? That was his first miracle. It was wedding time. It was a week-long feast. I mean, these people, you know, we have a little, a little dance and, you know, uh, we, we clap as the bride and groom, uh, you know, dance together in the middle of the floor. These people really knew how to get married. They celebrated for a week. Everybody in the community joined in a procession to the home of the newly married couple. The couple didn't go away on a honeymoon. They stayed home. They were guests of honor at a week-long continuous feast. And it was a whole neighborhood town involvement thing. If the bridegroom came from any distance, there was no predicting when he would arrive. Now, here's where Jesus was put drawing from a first century marriage. Because he was a highly honored guest, he deserved the welcome of the community even if he came late at night. And remember, they may not have met yet. In the parable, the ten virgins were much like the equivalent of modern-day bridesmaids who were there to celebrate the marriage of their friend. I want you to notice something. This hit me. Um, and they didn't know when he would come. And that, that's, that's the setting for the parable. But it hit me. Uh, it hit me today. Have you noticed that not one mention is made of the bride in the parable? All the bridesmaids are all there, ten virgins, they're all there. The friends, the bridegroom isn't there yet, but he's in the story. He's the centerpiece of the story. The bride's not even mentioned, only the groom. The bridegroom is away, and all the focus is on his imminent and unknown time of arrival. So the Lord is clearly pointing to himself. Now, this parable is an illustration. 
And uh, it's a type of what it will be like when Jesus returns to the earth. And we need to get that because that's the message of, of this story. We have five wise virgins who are ready for his arrival with oil in their lamps. And we have five foolish virgins who are caught totally unprepared. There's that theme again. It says the bridegroom finally arrives. When does he come? He comes at the midnight hour. Isn't that what it says about our Lord? He's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus focuses first on the five foolish virgins who are essentially panicking. They're panicking in this story. They're freaking out. Oh, my gosh. Here he is, and we don't have any oil for our lamps. We can't shine. We can't burn. And so they turn immediately to the wise virgins. Please, they say, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop, buy some for yourselves, go get your own. Now, what is Jesus saying here? The question has always been, what is the oil? What's the oil? I've heard all kinds of things, that the oil was works, good works, Um, I've heard lots of interpretations, but I've never parted from the one I'm going to share with you tonight because I think scripturally it easily stands as the best one, okay? What was it the five wise virgins were in possession of that the foolish ones didn't have? To me, it's clear. The oil is the Holy Spirit. Now, listen. The Bible says, if any man has not the Spirit of God, he is not his. So, so what, is he, what is Jesus saying here? Well, to, to me, it's clear. He's, the five foolish, foolish ones are religious folk who never got saved. And the five wise ones were true believers who had received the oil of the Holy Spirit. And that's why they were able to burn, because you're the light of the world. But our light is not fueled by us. Our light is fueled by the oil of the Holy Spirit. How do we burn in a dark and perverse generation? By abiding in the vine, walking full of the Spirit, and that is the oil that lights our lamp. Now, here's the way I think it breaks down. The oil is the Holy Spirit. The wick they trimmed and that was on fire illustrates the soul. And the lamp itself is our body. Didn't Jesus say uh, the light of the body is the eye? And doesn't the Bible say that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So so you know what we are? We're we're the, the, the temple of the Lord, but we're also a lantern. We're a lantern. And we receive oil in our lamp when we get saved the Holy Spirit, and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we burn and shine in a dark and perverse generation. The lamps of that day were fueled by oil. In order to keep a good flame, the wicks had to be trimmed by cutting away the charred remains. We've all done that with candles. The five wise virgins had plenty of oil to fuel the wick and light up the night at the bridegroom's return because he came at midnight. Oil in the Bible has always represented the Holy Spirit. You remember when Samuel, the first job Samuel was ever given, 
uh, Eli told Samuel, he said, now look, it's your job, son. He's just a little guy. He's still a kid. He said, your job is to keep the, the lamps burning in the temple. So you be sure, Samuel, that the fire never goes out in the temple. So his job was to go in there every morning and make sure that there was enough oil in those lamps in the temple, which represented the burning Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God. You be sure, Samuel, that those lamps never go out. That was a picture of our calling as priests. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you would show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So being a priest, one of our callings as priests of God is to keep that lamp burning in the temple like Samuel did. So the five foolish had no oil. They tried to borrow some from the wise virgins, but they could not. And I used to think, well, those wise ones were mean. If I'm seeing people panicking and I've got oil in my lamp, I'm going to give them some. And then I realized what it was about. They were told to go and get their own. Clearly, Jesus is pointing to the five wise virgins being genuinely saved. The five foolish were not. The giveaway is the bridegroom's words to the five foolish. What did he say to the five foolish? Read it with me. Believe me, I don't know you. Well, to me, that just settles it for the whole parable. It's clear to me that the five foolish virgins were yet lost, but they didn't think they were. The reason the five wise didn't give them some of their oil is because they couldn't. You know why? You can't give to somebody else the salvation they've got to get for themselves. That's why they couldn't give them any oil. I can't give you the Holy Ghost. I can pray for you. I can lay hands on you. I can anoint you with enough olive oil to slide you into the next room, but I can't give you the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Only one gives the Holy Spirit. What's his name? Jesus. He told the disciples, I'm going to the Father. I want you to gather. Don't you go out and preach until I have given to you the Holy Spirit. So they had to go get it for themselves because you can't, listen, we're not saved by mama's faith, grandma's faith, the preacher's faith, or anyone else's. When you go before the judgment bar of God, anybody, it's not going to matter if you say, but wait a minute, I was a member of Turning Point. You can say, I don't care about that. I want to know, did you receive the offer of my son? Did you repent and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sin and receive the Holy Spirit yourself? That's the message here. It's really kind of a, in one way, it's a really neat parable if you're saved, but in another way, it's, it's, it's a spooky parable because here's, they're all gathered together, 10 of them waiting for the bridegroom to show up, but five of them are still lost and don't know it. So we must personally come to Christ to get oil in our own lamps. What we have in this parable is a sobering picture of Christendom at the Lord's return. Now listen carefully. I didn't say the true church. I said Christendom. Because for me, there's a difference between the church and Christendom as a whole. The real church is comprised of born-again, blood-washed, 
spirit-filled, redeemed children of God. That's the church. But Christendom holds under its umbrella both the truly born again as well as the religious. That's Christendom. You know, you say, you know, all kinds of people say, oh, yeah, I'm in a church. Oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm this. I'm that. That's Christendom. But everybody who is in Christendom is not saved. The true church is saved. But you can be a member of a church and be lost as anybody out there. That's that's the message here. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a sifting of Christendom. Are you with me? It will include those who did things under the guise of Christianity, but who never really knew him. Didn't Jesus tell about these people in, in, in Matthew 7, verse 22? Let's read what he said. That there is, are going to be people when he returns. That's Matthew 7, 22. When he returns, who are going to say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, says Jesus, I never knew you. Isn't that the same words? As in the parable, I didn't know you, I never knew you, get away from me, you who break God's law. Now here's the deal. This is the five foolish virgins. At the Lord's coming, there will be a revelation of truth concerning those who have supposedly been his own during the period of his absence. All of those involved in symbolism over substance, ritual over relationship, will be exposed. And you know what, folks? It's not going to be pretty. That's why we preach, and always will, God helping me, we preach you must be born again. Because churches are filled with people who do good things. They, they give away money. They, they, they feed the poor. They you know, they, they, they come to church every time the doors are open. They sit there. They, they partake of communion. They, you know, they, they, they never get a traffic ticket. They're, they're, they're good moms, good dads, good, you know, good citizens. But they never have that personal turning to Christ where the oil is poured into their lamp. So when he returns, all of a sudden there's a section here in, in church and a section over here in church. There's five here, five here. And only at the return do the five foolish realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've missed something. Because I'm sitting here trying to trim my wick and and burn, and and, and I don't have any oil. But my my friends, the people I've grown up with, that I've known, they're burning. What happened? That's the danger of religion. Well, I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Protestant. I'm a good Baptist. So, are you saved? Because that's all that's going to matter on that day. That's the message of this parable. Jesus ends his parable with the familiar word, watch. What are we to watch? Watch to be certain you are his. Didn't Paul write these words, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith? Didn't he do that? Now, I'm not, I know I'm talking to the choir tonight. There may be a few here who need to pray. Maybe some watching by streaming video that need to pray. Because um, it's so easy 
You know, you got wheat and you got tares. That's what happened here. There was five wheat and five tares. But they didn't know it. Tares look just like wheat until it's full grown. And only then do you realize, well, this parable is saying the five foolish won't even realize it until he returns. They've been deceived. So we preach here that you must come to Christ individually. We all know that, but not everybody knows it. You must come to Christ individually. And how many of you are thankful for oil in your lamp? I mean, in the Holy Spirit, sweet and precious. Don't you thank God for the Holy Ghost of God? And that's the oil. That's the oil. And so, watch, said Jesus, to be certain you have a supply of the oil. Walk in the Spirit. Yield fully to the Lord. Be led by and controlled by the precious Holy Ghost. Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I mean, when I read a parable like this, it, it really helps me to connect the dots of all the other teachings in the, in the epistles, you know, the Pauline teachings, the Petrine teachings, everything that you read where, where Paul takes all of Romans 8 to say, look, now that you have been saved, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you will bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. For the flesh shall not have dominion over you, sin shall not have dominion. All the teachings that he gave us, they all agree with and harmonize with this, this parable. That for the believer, we're to get up and, and gather our manna every morning. And the manna is the Word of God. Gather that manna, read that Bible, feed on that manna, feed your spirit man. Give God your cares, your worries, your anxieties, your stresses, your concerns. Walk out that door full of the Spirit. Don't turn on good morning America. Say good morning Lord. That TV will bring you down and pollute your mind and corrupt your thinking. Get into the Word. And and, and if you do, you will walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And when he comes, then the real church is going to be able to trim that wick and and burn bright and say, I had oil in my lamp because I really came to you. So we've looked at our communal responsibility and our personal responsibility. Next time, we want to look at our kingdom responsibility to invest his goods into the world that he died for. Now, let me close this with a, a story that, that will bless you. And um, I'm sure I'm not breaking any confidence or anything, but let me tell you how God works. Would you believe that God works here in this church Monday through Friday? He does in, in an amazing way. Now, Thursday, I was in my, um, my study back here, the green room we call it. It's whatever we need it to be. But I was back here and I was studying. And I was studying for uh, tonight and for Sunday. And... Um, I kind of got a brain cramp. You ever get a brain cramp where you're studying, you know, too much and you just, I'm going to take a break. So I said to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to take a break. I think I'll go through the bookstore. I haven't been through the bookstore in a few months. Let me go see how it's looking and what Jeffrey's doing back there and all of that. So I came through here. Of course, no one here. I came through here. I walked into the bookstore and there stands one of our employees and a man I'd never seen or met. 
So I said to the employee, hey, Donna, how you doing? And I'm just passing through. And the man says, he wheels around and he says, you must be Pastor Jeff Wickwire. And I said, yes, I am. He said, I've never met you, but I know all about you. I froze up. Uh oh. He said, I know all about you. I know the names of some of your dogs. I know, I know you're a dog lover. I know that you love coffee. He goes off all these things. I'm thinking, ooh. And, and then he said, I know because I listen to you on radio every day, and you have been my radio pastor because I don't go to church anywhere. I said, Well, bless your heart. I said, It's so good to meet you. And he said, You know, I need to be water baptized. I said, well, you know what? We're baptizing this Sunday. You ought to come this Sunday. He said, you know, I'm going to do that. So we had a great talk. I helped him find a Bible for somebody he'd been witnessing to. And I walked out. And I walked down to Valerie's office. Now, Valerie's office has a window in the door. And and this this all figures into walking in the Spirit, being full of the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit. So All of a sudden, as I'm talking to Valerie, I see him walk by again. So I said, I'm going to introduce him to Valerie. So I opened the door. He was already kind of looking in, and I invited him in, and he stood there a minute. And I said, this is Valerie, and uh, she's my executive assistant. And and he says, thank you so much. Good to meet you. And all of a sudden, he breaks down, and he begins to weep. He's a big, burly, manly man. Last thing you expect him to do is cry. He breaks down. I said, what's, what's wrong? He said, well, a lot of family trouble. I lost my wife Christmas time, I think, to cancer. And I've got a very troubled son. And he said, I just don't know what to do. So I said, you know, let's just pray. So Valerie took one hand, I took the other, and we just began to pray. I prayed for him. I'm very aware. Listen, I believe in divine encounters. Always remember this little statement. When God wants to bless you, he puts a person in your life. When Satan wants to destroy you, he puts a person in your life. Works both ways. But I believe that if you give your life to God every day and yield and walk in the Spirit, you're going to be experiencing divine encounters. Because God's in charge of you. So I thought, there's no, I mean, how often do I go through that bookstore? Never. God was involved. So we prayed. He said, thank you so much. You know, he's, 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 he's wiping his eyes, and, and, and uh, he's, he's got the new Bible, and he, and he walks out. I said, now, don't forget, you come Sunday, and, and by the way, why don't you just bring your son? Well, I don't know if he'll come. I said, well, just ask him. We're going to believe he comes. He said, okay. Well, Sunday, I was watching the water baptism. You know how we can watch it up here. And all of a sudden, I see him. And there he goes down in the water. But then Valerie came and told me, Pastor, it's not just him that's here. His son is here. And his son's wife is here. And his daughter is here. And they're all being water baptized. All of them. I wish we had the picture to flash up there. I should have thought of this. But this whole family, and they all came right here after the second service. And I met the son, and I met his wife, and I met the daughter. 
and um, the man, he's beaming from ear to ear, so totally different from Thursday. So I'm telling you that story just to let you know that when you yield your life to God and you walk in the Spirit, God will move you around on the chessboard of life, and you will encounter people that are divine appointments. And sometimes that divine appointment is so that you can cancel a satanic assignment. Amen? So I want you to say with me, I'm dangerous for God.